0: How many of you know, and I've been asking this question to a lot of people this week, how many of you know what I mean when I say, oh, he's just a tire kicker? Anyone? Anyone at all? See, see, everyone my age and older knows what that is. Or if you've ever been in sales, you probably know what that is, right? Tony, Puente, you know what that is, right? I mean, a tire kicker. Thank you so much, Austin. A tire kicker is someone who comes to the car lot or comes to the real estate showing, Debbie, right? And they just want to look around. It's great. We're here. We want to see. Show us everything. Let me waste an hour or two of your time. Uh, they kind of look around and they look at the car. They look at the condo whatever it is they're supposed to be buying. They go, oh, this is, is this real wood floor? Oh, wow, that's great. Wow, love that. You know, how does this do in the hurricane? Oh, it does really fine. Yeah, you know, they they just kind of walk around. And they even sometimes ask good questions. And you think this is a bona fide buyer. And you're you're kind of thinking maybe they're going to do something. Maybe they even, if it's a car, they're taking a test drive, you know. And they're hanging out. They're really checking it out. And you're thinking, okay. And then when you actually ask one of those questions to see if there's actually a buyer, like, well, you know... If you're so interested, would you like to, you know, pursue a deal on this home or on this, this car? And they go, oh, oh wait a minute, you know, I, I gotta, They start crawfishing backwards, you know, you know what crawfishing is, right? Crawfish go backwards. That's, man, we gotta we got to study up on this stuff. Anyway, not enough people from Louisiana, I guess. Anyway, so but they never really make the deal, do they? They act like it. You think maybe they're going to do it, but they don't ever really, really do it. And I guess in the old days, you would kick the tires of a car to see if the tires were going to pop or something, but that's, that's, a, that's what it means. It's like a, some, maybe a, just a window shopper. Um, in my 14 years of sales, we used to call him gonna buys. He's a gonna buy. Oh yeah, we're gonna buy, just not today. We'll come back, and they might come back, and you really hope they don't come back, right? Because if they don't come back, then you've got to listen to them and do this whole thing all over again, and you know when it comes time to close the deal, they're not going to do it, and you wasted another hour of your time. Well, there's also, I mean, there's, there's tire kickers in car buying, home buying. There's tire kickers in getting a new job. There's even tire kickers in dating relationships, but I think we have another word for them, which we won't share at this time. But um, there's spiritual tire kickers. There's they come to church, sometimes, maybe a lot, but don't really ever quite get what God wants to deliver. And they miss out. And that's what we're talking about today in Acts chapter 24. We're talking about spiritual tire kickers. Those who act like, they seem like they're going to do it, they seem like, but they never really quite actually do it. We're in Acts chapter 24. As you know, we preach through books of the Bible, major passages of Scripture. We're we're going to be in Acts 24, the whole chapter today. We'll finish Acts, actually the first week of September, and begin a series in Genesis. In Genesis, starting the, I think it's the 10th of September, the second week of September. Excited about that. I love the book of Genesis. It really sets the stage for the whole gospel narrative. Excuse me. So Acts chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, God's word says this, and after five days, the chief priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, and laid before the governor their case against Paul. Now, let's set the stage. If you've been with us, you know that Paul has been, um, the the Jews accused him of defiling the temple by bringing a Gentile into the temple. Uh, They had no basis for this, but they actually saw him with some Gentiles in town, thought, well, I'm sure he took him to the temple. Anyway, they get all upset. There's a near riot. They're about to kill Paul. And the Roman soldiers step in, the, the local leader, the tribune, Lysias. He steps in. And he stops him, and he hauls Paul into the barracks, and then he calls in the Jewish council, the leaders, and he goes, hey, what are your, what are your problem with this man? And Paul says, he starts talking about the resurrection. It turns out the council's divided. They, part of them believe in a resurrection, part of them don't. The Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection, which is why, with me, they're so sad, you see, right? John MacArthur, old joke. We have to tell it every time we mention that. Um, you can use that as parties. People will appreciate that. Um, But the Pharisees, they do believe in a resurrection. And so they have this big debate amongst themselves, and they're about to kill Paul over it. And the Roman guy has to rescue him again. And then 40 40 Jewish zealots, they decide, hey, we're going to ambush Paul. And we're not going to eat or drink until we do. We're going to kill him. But by the grace of God, Paul's nephew hears about it alerts Paul who tells the Romans who sent 470 soldiers to move Paul from Jerusalem 60 miles down to Caesarea down on the beach of the Mediterranean where Herod had a great castle great uh, palace there if you've ever been to the Holy Land you've seen it it's amazing he had a pool and everything Um, so that's where they took Paul and so that's where the governor of the area, the Roman governor who ruled the area, that's where he was stationed. His name was Felix. And that's where they take Paul. And so he shows up there and the Jews bring their, they, they come to bring their accusations and they don't just come with their people. They hire a hired gun. They hire a well-known defense attorney. Or a prosecutor, somebody who really knew how to how to state the facts and how to not get off in the weeds, but kind of make their argument really concise and powerful. And this guy's name is Tertullus. In verse 2, the trial begins. And when he, that is Paul, had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you, O great Felix, he's talking to Felix, we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no longer, I beg you in your kindness to honor us briefly. Can't you just hear him? Oh, great Felix. Incidentally, he hates Felix. The Jews hate Felix, he's not been a good leader. They're just doing whatever they can to say, Hey, Felix, we're on your side. We both have the same interest. You know, we're, we're thinking the same way. So that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to endear himself to Felix, to ingratiate himself. You've done so much. You've provided peace and reform, and peace was Felix's job. So this was a conquered area that Rome ruled, and so what they wanted to have happen there, they wanted there to be peace in this place. So that was his job. So if there wasn't peace, Felix was at fault and could be replaced um, later. But he also says something really important that kind of gets at what he's after. In verse 3, he says, but we don't want to detain you. You know, we don't want to take any more of your time, you know. This is a slam dunk case. You really don't need to dive deep into the facts, because actually you didn't have any facts. But this is, this is, this is, doesn't, don't waste your time with this. It's really easy, slam dunk, let's move on. We don't want to waste your time. Let's just get a decision and move on. That's what Tertullus is all about. And so he does then share their case in brief, verse three, or verse five, sorry. For we have found this man a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Here's what he's saying Paul is a plague. He's a disease. He's a cancer among the people. He's a problem. And everywhere he goes, he stirs up riots again. He destroys the peace among our people. When I was a kid, maybe you remember this, I had uh, three siblings. And you're always trying to get in good with mom and dad. And you're always trying to get to good to play how you want to play, you know. And one of the best things you could do is say, you know what, mom? Me and Linda were playing perfectly good until Brenda came along and disturbed the peace. Did you ever try that one? Did your kids ever do that one for you? Everything was fine until, and then they would get rid of the other child. Incidentally, all my siblings are awesome, and I love them dearly. And if they're listening to this, I'm really sorry, Brenda, but uh, you're my favorite. Um, She'll listen, won't you? And she'll tell me about it, yeah. Yeah. He's a plague. He stirs up trouble everywhere he goes. Oh, oh, not only that, he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, which the Nazarenes may have been kind of a rebel group, might have been a Jewish nationalist group, may have been a problem. He's a ringleader of this group that's, it's a fringe group. He's not mainstream. He's not someone who should be listened to. He's he's one of these problem groups that's going to try to destroy Rome. He's not one of us. Oh, and by examining him, oh, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. You know, he even brought and, and dirt and filth into the temple. And, and Rome was very, they thought every, all, everybody's temple should be protected. They were, they were very clear about that. They had a lot of gods and um, the temples were supposed to be protected. And so he profaned our temple. We seized him. That's why we got him. And you'll understand this when you hear him. You'll get this. You'll, you'll agree with us when you get done with him. All the Jews then piled on with their accusations. In short, Felix, they wanted Felix to think that you're not doing your job if you don't dispose of Paul. But we're all agreed, and we love you, and we're all good, but you need to take care of this guy because he's a problem. And Paul responds in verse 24. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. There's no long flowery, you're wonderful. It's just, hey, I know you're the judge. You have the right to hear from me, and I'm going to make my defense cheerfully. Verse 11. You can verify that it has not been been more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. In other words, it's false. I didn't stir anything up. I came up to the temple. I did what I was supposed to do. They have no proof about what they're alleging. Verse 13. But this I must confess to you that according to the way which they... Uh, call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust here 's what Paul is saying. Listen, I want you to know I am a part of the way. The way was how they described the church within the Jewish uh, world, the Jewish religion that the, And he says, listen, I believe what they, I believe everything the prophets said, which is what these men believe. I believe for us, I believe all the Old Testament. I'm I'm with them. I'm there. I'm there. I'm, I'm not a member of some wacko sect of some crazy people, some weird guys. This is a normal part of what the Jewish people should be believing. That's who I am and that's what I do. But I do believe in the resurrection of the just and the unjudged, and most of the Jews at that time, other than the Sadducees, did believe in a resurrection, an ultimate judgment. That's part of their belief at the time. They didn't understand that Jesus was the key to that, but they did believe there was a resurrection, verse 16. So I also take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. In other words, I'm not trying to offend anybody. I've been careful not to offend them or offend the Roman government. Verse 17, now after several years, I came to bring alms, and I think it was probably about five years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, incidentally, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me, or else let these men say what wrongdoing they found that I should be before this council. He said, listen. I'm in the temple, I purified myself, I did the right thing, I showed up, I wasn't causing a problem. Um, And if some people accused me, they didn't even show up to accuse me. They didn't even make it down here to Caesarea. Verse 21, other than this one thing I did, verse 21, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead, that I am on trial before you this day. Because he knows when he said that before the council, there was this uproar, and these, the Sadducees and the Pharisees attacked one another and attacked him. And he's saying, listen, I know that the real issue here is the resurrection of the dead. And that is the real issue, isn't it? I mean, that's the reason why we're here. Jesus Christ didn't provide us resurrection to glory, to heaven, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll fly away. If Jesus Christ didn't do that, there's no point in us being here. Says so the whole point is the resurrection of the dead. That's why I'm here. Basically, Paul is saying these charges are false. My, accus- my accusers didn't show up. I'm no threat to Rome. I'm no threat to the peace. I've just proclaimed the resurrection. And then Felix has an opportunity to respond. He's heard both sides of the story. He's heard why he shouldn't listen to Paul. He's heard from Paul why it matters what Paul is saying. In verse 22, what will he do? What will Felix do? What decision will he make? It says, but Felix, verse 27, having a rather accurate, sorry, verse 22, Felix rather having a a accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of, that, that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Now, Felix, it's important for us to know who Felix is, right? Felix was a former slave. He's known as a freedman. Him and his brother, Pallas, uh, somehow got free from slavery, worked their way up. Pallas was a favorite of the emperor. He had a lot of sway, probably got Felix his role as governor of the area. Now Felix, for his part, really wasn't an effective leader. He was known to be corrupt. He handled the disputes between the Jews and the Gentiles badly. He handled Jewish nationalism very bad. As a matter of fact, that's what got him removed from office ultimately, is he couldn't handle this dispute between the Jews and the Gentiles. His personal life was kind of interesting as well. His first wife was actually the granddaughter of Antony and Cleopatra. You may have heard of them. His third wife is who he's married to now. Her name is Drusilla. She is is a Jewish, she's Jewish, and she was married to the king's son, and he, Felix, convinced her to leave him to be with him. He promised her happiness because that's essentially what his name means in Latin, Felix. And so there was an affair. So they got married. She left her husband and they got married. So that's who Felix is. Not a great character, not a man of character, someone who was not a good leader, corrupt, and also had a problem with being faithful. So he says, I'm going to put Paul, instead of making a decision about, because if I choose to punish this man and maybe even kill him the way the Jews want me to, there's, there's no real legal basis for that. He's a Roman citizen. I can't really do that. But if I don't punish him, then I might have this uh, incredible riot happen, and there won't be peace, and I won't have done my job. So what do I do? I, no matter what I do, I'm going to, it's not going to be well. So what does he do? He does nothing. He says, Paul, I'm going to put you in what's called military custody, which means Paul had some freedom. He could get up and get around and people could come see him. And um, it turns out to be two years. And during this time, Paul's in kind of a holding pattern. He wants to get to Rome. He wants to proclaim the message of Jesus in Rome. But there's two years here but people have access to Paul. Many scholars believe that this is when Luke did a lot of his research with Paul to write Luke and Acts. We don't know. It doesn't look like Paul wrote any letters that wound up in Scripture at this time. Uh, but he may have written some encouraging letters that didn't wind up in Scripture. But he was able to minister to people during these two years. But he's kind of in a holding pattern. You ever been in a holding pattern? You just kind of stopped from where you want to be. And you're kind of wondering what's going on. Well, thankfully, Paul is faithful during this time as his plans are delayed to go to Rome. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about, the faith, about faith in Christ Jesus. Paul gets to share the gospel message with the Roman governor. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Now that's, you can imagine when you share Christ with somebody, their first question is, well, what does it mean? I've had many people ask me, what are the rules? How do I live? And Paul is sharing with him that if you follow Jesus, you'll want to live like Jesus. And you will deal with the issues of sin in your life. And that's, that's what Jesus, he paid for those issues. And so you're going to want to, he's going to draw you away from that. And following Jesus means to walk away from sin. He talked to him about judgment. But there is a judgment coming. Felix was alarmed and he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. I'm still not ready to make a decision. Just that's too much. He's convicted. He wants Paul to back off for a while. When two years had elapsed, Felix, I'm sorry, wait a minute, at the same time, he, verse 26, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Felix heard the good news of Jesus from one of the greatest theologians and preachers of all times. and He's heard it from Paul, but he didn't make a decision. At least once he got convicted, at least there was a time when it was close. It looked like, you know, he's like, I'm afraid, I'm alarmed, there's going to be a judgment, but he he didn't make a decision. He, he backed off. Um, biblical commentator J.B. Polhill describes it this way. He says that Felix, about Felix, he said, He was at the point of conviction, but he was never willing to go beyond the point and take the leap of faith. In the end, his greed, his lust, and a desire to preserve his power carried the day. Felix never made a decision about Paul's case, And he never made a decision about Jesus. His no decision was a decision, wasn't it? His decision was no to Jesus. He was really just a spiritual tire kicker. Let me take up two years of your life, Paul. Let me take up all your time. Let me prevent you and delay you from doing what you feel like you must do but I'm not going to really make a decision. I'm not going to do that. He's concerned about getting a little deal sweetener, if you will. He needs it to be a little better deal. At least that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? If you were buying a car, he'd be saying, you know what, I I need just a little more off of that sticker price. I need a little better warranty. I, I need maybe some free maintenance. I need something more if he was buying a house or a condo, he's probably saying, you know what, I need to, I need something off of this. I need something better. I need a, I need them to fix this. I need them to fix that. I need to go to redo the bathroom. Then maybe I'll buy it. Or if you're getting a job, it's like, you know, I, I need a little better pay structure. I need a little better benefits. I need a little more paid time off. Or even more sadly, if you're dating, it's like, you know what, I, I was thinking maybe there'd be a trust fund. I was thinking maybe there's, maybe your family has a resort home somewhere we could use. You know, or maybe, maybe dolphin tickets, something, right? I just need a little sweetener. I need things to be a little better. See, tire kickers are never satisfied with what's actually on the table. Jesus is just not enough. Sometimes these are the kind of people where if you're talking to them, you feel like, I've I got to help them. i got to tell them how great it is. I, I gotta... Isn't Jesus enough? They say, oh, yeah, you know, it, it's, um, eternal life sounds great, and I'm excited about that, but couldn't he make my life better now? Couldn't you just promise me? that if I follow Jesus, that my life is going to be better. Maybe I'll be healthier, wealthier, or wiser. I'll be more important. Can you just promise me that? Let me just give you the answer to that. No. Please don't come to Jesus thinking he's going to make you wealthy or healthy. More important, please don't come to It's It's demeaning to him, right? Jesus Christ paid the price on the cross for you. He paid the price for every sin you've ever committed. He got you off. He makes you innocent. Isn't that enough? Isn't having an eternal home, isn't that enough? You see, if Jesus' payment on the cross for the penalty your failures earned is not enough, if eternal life in heaven is not enough, you've missed the value of Jesus. And I wonder if you really feel the weight of sin. One of the greatest things that can happen to you is for you to be convicted of sin. Like, well, that sounds miserable. That doesn't sound great. No, it's actually the most wonderful place you can be is where God reveals what he had to die for you for. Sometimes we walk around like, you know, I don't even know why Jesus had to die for me. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not as bad as Mike Keller, you know. I'm not really, I'm not like that at all, right? Mike Keller's a very godly man as far as I know. Right, Debbie? Right? Yeah, he's very godly. Okay. Um, man, I, it's a wonderful thing for God to say to you, this is, this is where you're falling short. This is what I had to die for you. Did you know that everyone in here has sinned? I I, I believe that's 100%. Everyone, it's a good place to be you feel the weight of your sin because that's what Jesus died to take away. And that's why we love him. You see the scariest, and we say this a lot here, the scariest, most dangerous place you can be is comfortably separated from God. And that's where we live when we don't understand our sinfulness. It's the scariest place to be. People say, well, you know what, how come all these sinners are having such a great life? You know, I would rather not have a great life and know Jesus than to have their life. It's a scary place because you don't know your need for Jesus when you're comfortable. When I mean, you have the things of this world, when you have the food you need, when you have every, all the pleasure you want, you have the whole, all the stuff that you want can comfortably separate you from God. Let me just say this. If you're going through a difficult day today, and you're finding yourself needing to fall on Jesus constantly, praise God for that. Praise God for that. Because to not need Jesus is a terrible place. It's a terrible place to be. Can you feel the weight of your sin? Can you feel that? It's literally like Jesus Christ is standing before you now with a gift that he paid for with his blood. Saying, would you accept this gift? You just have to admit that you need it. Would you accept this gift that I paid for? That I want to give you, I want you to have. Would you accept this gift of being reborn? Of being forgiven? Of having a home? Would Would you accept that? Or can you look Jesus in the eye today and say, no. I need it to be sweeter. It's not enough. Some of you have been walking with Jesus a long time. You get saved a long time ago. Your walk has kind of ebbed and flowed. It's been up and down. It's happened and it hasn't happened. You're kind of, but maybe you've regressed away from being all in for Jesus and you've kind of become a little bit of a tire kicker and you've kind of just walk around church and you see it and it looks good. But you, you think about it, you know, maybe I'm going to get involved. Maybe I'm, I'm going to get in a life group. I am. But you never really do. Maybe I'm going to get involved in leadership and I'm going to serve, but you, you never really do. Maybe I'm going to make worship a priority, but it never really is. I want to encourage you to come home. You say, well, Steve, if I do all those things, does that to mean I'm not a tire kicker? No, what it means is hopefully it means that your heart has changed. You can't earn your way or work your way into God's good grace. All you really need to do is be a repentant person and say, Jesus, you're the most most important thing in my life. You're my primary identity. You're how I identify myself mainly. I'm a Jesus follower. I've been saved. I've been forgiven. That's where my confidence is. That's where my faith is. That's where my sense of well-being is. The world constantly wants to tell you to find your sense of well-being somewhere else. The Bible cries out, Jesus, you're my rock, you're my fortress, you're where I run to, you're the one who shepherds me, you've prepared an eternal place for me. That's what Jesus offers. You know, tire kickers never really enjoy the joy of ownership. Close physically, but distant spiritually. Around people who love Jesus, but really distant spiritually because they will not let go of what it costs to receive the gift. And what it costs to receive the gift is simply this it's simply your sinfulness. Jesus, I, I want you to pay for my sinfulness. I don't want to be that way anymore. And as easy as it sounds, for a lot of people, they don't want to give up sin because that's how they know how to live. Would you want to trade your sin for Jesus? He would love that. He's not waiting to beat you over the head, make you feel bad. He's just saying, hey, listen, I want you to be like these other people who have received Jesus because they all sin too. It's that moment of humility where you're reborn. Would that be you today? Would that be you today? I would love to have that conversation with you. And we'll take as much time as we need to, but I definitely want to have that conversation with you or connect you with a leader who can have that conversation. Because there's a lot of people who show up at church, who look good, who sound good, know the lingo, but they're really tire kickers. They're missing out on the joy of being an owner. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, sometimes, Lord, we admit that we get close, but we don't commit. God, I lift up those today who would say, you know, I'm close. I'm around. People know me. But there's always a point, Jesus, where I just say, I can't go that far. There's always a point, Jesus, where I give my, I refuse to give you my permission to do whatever you want in my life. Or there's a point in my life where I'm resistant to repentance. Oh, Lord, I pray you break our hearts, that everyone here could feel the weight of their sin pray that each person here could know the joy of salvation, of being reborn, of knowing you, Lord. Let nothing stand in the way, but every one of us who's followed you, Lord, we've been to that place, and we go back to that place of repentance daily, because we know we can't earn it. we're so grateful that You give us, you come back to us over and over again. But Lord, we know the time is short and we can't guarantee there'll be another time. Make it today, Lord. Would you draw people to you? Save them from their sin. Welcome them into your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray.